Good morning. Ken Mayne told me that we were starting the videos uh, for the Operation Christmas Child, and I was like, what? It's not, it's not time for that yet, but it is, isn't it? It's already, I can't believe it. We're already at that time, uh, so you guys know what to do. Uh, go get like 50 or 60 of those boxes out there and take them home with you, now pack them up. If you don't know what to get, uh, just give your credit card to one of the youth here at the church and they will pick out things and uh, we'll be good on our way that, in that fashion. Uh, I do encourage you to go ahead and start picking up some of those boxes. The return date is the 13th, right? The 13th, they need to be back. You don't want to wait to the 12th to try to do that. That's the holiday women's luncheon thing and, and you'll be busy with that. Um, so, so go ahead and get a box now, fill it up, and bring it back. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Uh, most of our attention will be on verses 1 and 2, uh, 3 will tie in a little bit with this week and then with next week's, but Ephesians chapter 4. 1 through 3, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Verse 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, I pray now that your spirit would um, convict us and show us those areas of our life that we need to apply these texts to our lives. Father, there might be someone here who uh, cannot have this unity of the spirit because they've never trusted your son. They've never put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I pray as we look at this text and we consider walking worthy that uh, your spirit would uh, convict those who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that they would understand their sinfulness and their separateness from you, and that today will be a day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here who maybe we've fallen into a rut of what we think Christianity should be, that we will consider what it is to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. The Stanford uh, Prison Experiment was conducted August 14, 1971, and it was an experiment that you can read in many psychology uh, textbooks. It, it lasted, they, they wanted it to go a lot longer, but it only lasted six days. It ended up stopping on August 20th. The experiment had uh, college students that uh, they divided in two groups, and uh, there was one group that was the prisoners. And then the other group was the prison guards, and, and uh, they had them there. <clears throat> and, uh, the reality was that they were students studying, just part of an experiment. They, they knew that going in. They, they knew that they were free. They knew that they were just students participating in an experiment, a psychological experiment. And uh, they, they went in knowing that truth. But as the days progressed, what was interesting to note was that the prisoners, uh, quote-unquote prisoners, uh, ended up acting in a way uh, of 
of certain violence. And they started uh, showing a, a spirit of depression and started engaging in certain things. And then the guards also started changing as the experiment progressed. And uh, they became violent towards the prisoners and being disrespectful and, and insulting and so forth. And it kind of showed something very interesting that even though the reality was that they were college students, they were free, they, they hadn't been accused of anything, and they were just part of an experiment, even though they knew these truths, their context, their environment kind of set a tone for how they started behaving, how they started acting. In other words, they disregarded who they were and practiced what they were assigned to do. We're looking in Ephesians, and in, this letter is written to a church that's in a city that's very, very religious. Not godly, but very religious. They had their idols, and they were very proud of their temple, the temple to the goddess Diana. And they, they loved the temple. In fact, you can read in, in Acts chapter 19 how Demetrius the silversmith, how he, he got people together to, to chant, and they chanted for about two hours about uh, Artemis, uh, how they, great and magnificent Artemis was. Paul is ministering in the city, and uh, he's writing to them, and there's people that are, are being changed. They're going from death to life. They're being converted. They're going from a state where they understand that their sinfulness separates them from God, and then they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith in Jesus Christ gives them a relationship with God. It gives them life. And now as this uh, happens, one would have to ask, does this have any effect in our life? Uh, worshiping an idol didn't require much change individually. The, the person basically would go and offer sacrifices and do different offerings, but there really wasn't any change in the motivation, the way that they behaved towards one another. I mean, the gods were just nothing more than humans, just a little bit with more power. And the question is, is as people started converting, going from uh, worshiping a idol to worshiping true and living God, should it have any influence in their life? Should it have any impact at all on how they should behave one with another? Now, Paul is going to address this. We're getting into chapter 4, and this is where we start to see what it is to live based on the fact of all the verses that we've seen, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, what does it look like? And you could probably imagine these type of questions. Uh, the person who came and started sharing the gospel was Paul, who used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Is converting to a trust in God, is that equal to uh, believing in the Old Testament and, and following the law? Or, or maybe it's uh, to take on what the Pharisees, how they lived, and how they believed in certain rules and regulations. Uh, what was it like to be now a Christian is, is the question that you can imagine that they're asking. Now, as we look at this, Paul is going to make a shift now to start addressing the community of believers and how they are supposed to live. And what we're going to be looking at is that since God has called you, purposely live in community transformed by your caller. Since God has called you, purposely live in community transformed by your caller. And we see this in 
uh, the first verse, to walk worthy. It, it says, uh, therefore. Now, it's a, uh, it's a conjunction, and it's a conjunction that is uh, inferential, denoting that it introduced something based on what has previously been uh, presented. So what he's about to present contextually is related to what he has been developing, at least chapter 3. But you can also see ties in with chapter 2 and chapter 1. And so this goes based on what he has already said. He's going to go into this, and he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That implore is uh, to urge, to strongly appeal to, to exhort, to encourage. It's a word that um, has this idea that he is uh, using in a, a command force, an imperatival force. Sometimes we can use uh, words that are verbs that are not imperatives, but it has the force of an imperative. It, it, and here he's using it as a almost a command, urging them, exhorting them. And he is uh, the one who is exhorting them is uh, I, Paul, the the prisoner of the Lord. Now, this is very similar to chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, the, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. But there are a little bit of differences between the two. He is saying that he is a prisoner, very similar to uh, clarification of who he is, like Tony the mafioso. Uh, he is Paul the prisoner. And here we have a, uh, a, a prepositional phrase that marks a relationship, uh, a prisoner of the Lord. But the, the reality is that it's not a preposition of relationship, but it's a preposition of, of sphere. It's in the Lord. The idea is not denoting relationship as in chapter 3, verse 1, but it's uh, saying that he is in the context of the Lord Jesus. Just like we are inside of a building, he is a prisoner in the Lord. And it's different than the verse chapter 3, verse 1, where he is saying of uh, Christ Jesus. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, he is saying of the Lord. There's a lordship aspect. So as he is a prisoner inside the sphere of the Lord, he loses identity in what is seen is the Lord, his lordship in his life. And this has a dominating effect in his life as to how he's going to act and how he's going to behave, how he's going to interact with one another, how he's going to live for the Lord or live for himself. He doesn't live for himself because his identity is lost because he's in the sphere of the Lord. He's under the headship, in the headship, in union with Christ. And he says to them, I implore you to walk. Now here he uh, concludes his, uh, uh, what he's trying to get them to do. He, to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That word walk, um, uh, worthy, I'm sorry, is kind of a, a rare word that's used in the New Testament. It's not used a whole bunch of times. In fact, uh, it's used in Romans chapter 16, verse 2. If you remember, verse 1 is talking about Phoebe, and 
Paul is recommending Phoebe to the church in Rome, and uh, he tells them to uh, act towards her, to welcome her in a manner worthy of the saints. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul urges the church to live a life worthy of the gospel. Uh, in Colossians 1.10, Paul is telling the believers to walk worthy, and then he describes what it is to walk worthy. Walking worthy has uh, bearing fruit, a very good work, and increasing in knowledge. That, that's the context of Colossians, that walking worthy involves bearing fruit and involves increasing in knowledge. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, Paul's writing to a group of believers who are starting to be persecuted. In fact, the persecution that is happening against them, they think that the world is at its end, that Christ is about to return, or maybe Christ has already returned, and they're in a time of tribulation. And he writes to them and encourages them and says, even in this suffering, you're to walk worthy. The one reference that we have outside of Paul is 3 John verse 6 where John is writing to Gaius, and he tells him that uh, he, he is impressed by him, impressed by the fact that he cares for the brothers, uh, especially uh, the, the strangers who he has taken care of, that his love for the church he has taken care of, he has been hospitable to these strangers. The idea is probably that these strangers that are coming through are maybe evangelists or missionaries, and as they come, he has taken care of them. Uh, when my wife and I, we were uh, missionaries, we, uh, we had some churches that were uh, extremely, extremely well taking care of us. And then there was other churches that, 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 that just didn't take care of us that well. Uh, I remember my wife and I, we were presenting at a church, and uh, uh, they uh, dismissed us to go out to the foyer to greet people. And uh, as we were out there waiting to greet the people, the church ended up exiting out another door and went out to the parking lot. And finally, uh, the janitor that was closing up the place said, uh, are you guys about to leave? Because uh, I need to lock the place up. Uh, that was not a great experience. I'm not sure that they acted worthy in that context. Uh, we were at another church, and they were fantastic. They asked us uh, what our mileage was from where we were traveling to to get to their church. And then they asked us where we were going to after their church. And so they took up a love offering for our time there. And then they also covered our gas and food expenses to there and to the next place. <laughs> they acted in a way worthy, kind of a third, uh, third John verse 6. Here the idea has that this worthy manifests itself. So it's not something that you act worthy intellectually. You know, you can't secretly hide, you know, be worthy in a way, you know, privately. Worthy is shown, demonstrated towards other people. And that's what Paul is saying, that you walk worthy. Now, it's modifying the walking, to walk. Now, in its most general sense, walking has this idea of uh, going around on, on two feet, walking around from one place to another. But in a more metaphorical sense, it has this idea of how you conduct your life, how you behave. What, what's your habit of co uh, conduct? It, it's, it's used uh, already twice in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 2, we see how we used to walk. It says, uh, in which you formerly walked 
according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Uh, we who were dead in our trespasses of sin, this is how we conducted ourselves. It was the natural way of doing things, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's how we lived. But then salvation happened. And something radically transformed us. We, we were changed in a, in a way that's incredible. And we see that in verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. That walking in them is now a, a total transformation. Before we were walking according to the prince of power of this air, and now we're to be walking in the good works that God has prepared for us. That's how we're supposed to be living. That should be our conduct of life. Now, seeing this, we have to say, well, now why should I walk worthy? On the basis of what? I see that he's saying to walk worthy, but on the basis of what should we walk worthy? Well, I think that there's three becauses. The first is because we are exhorted to do so. In, in verse 1, he is uh, saying he's imploring. Now, this is obviously Paul writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to the church. But the authority of this is not on Paul. Rather, the authority is that God has inspired Paul to write this. So it's not Paul urging them, imploring them, exhorting them to walk worthy. It is God telling them to live this way. God is telling them to do this. The authority behind what he is saying is not a personal thing. Uh, uh, some uh, Jewish Pharisee on his way to Damascus had some experience, and now he's going to start writing churches and telling people how to live. That's not the basis. The basis is God telling them how to live. And he's saying, I'm urging you, do this. Now, we can either accept our own authority and say, well, I, I'm not going to do that. Or we'll accept the scriptures as, as being authoritative in our life. And if he's telling us to do this, this is what we must do. God is urging them to walk worthy. This walking worthy is, in a certain way, related to the fact of how we see ourselves. Paul sees himself as a prisoner in the sphere of the Lord, in the Lord, under the Lordship of Christ. How do you see yourself? Well, Jesus and I are basically equals. You know, he has some good insight. I have some good insight. We kind of marriage that together, and I've got this great, fantastic life. Well, that's not it at all. That's not submitting to the lordship of, uh, of Christ. As you see yourself, you'll either be obeying this or not. It's very hard for a proud person to practice this. It's very hard for a proud person to say, uh, yes, I will submit to the lordship. Because they're always looking for something better. And they think, well, they have this better thing. Now, as we look at this, he is united to Christ. And that's something we have to first examine. He's not saying that he is a prisoner of the Lord in that he knows information about him. And some here might have a bunch of Bible stories. 
you might know a lot of stories about Jesus and the things that he did. But that is not what puts him in this relationship. Rather, he has trusted, as it says in chapter 2, that he has put his faith in, and that is what saved him. He has received this grace. Have you ever had that experience? Has there ever been a moment where you saw that your sinfulness has separated you from God and there wasn't a thing in the world you could do to get an inch closer to the Lord and you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you have done that, then you're to walk worthy. You are a prisoner of the Lord. Now, not only are we to walk worthy because he has commanded us, but because now is the best time to start. Now is the best time to start. If you see that verb where he's imploring them to walk, it's a, it's a present. It's not a future. It's not when things calm down in your home. It's not when life gets a little bit less hectic at work. It's not when, you know, we're coming up on the season, the holiday season, we got the Halloween and the Thanksgiving and the Christmas. In January, I'm going to start walking worthy. It's just it's too chaotic right now. No. It, it, it's, a, it's a present. And it's a, a progressive present, as in if you were to read this every day, every day it's imploring you to walk worthy. Every single day, do this. You walk in a, in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Now, not only is it has a present progressive, so we start now, but it's because you have been invited to live differently. You've been invited to live differently. Now, see how the verse ends up? It says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It has uh, an idea of an invitation to an experience uh, a special privilege, a responsibility, uh, but it's also how one calls somebody to a position. And he says, you have received a calling, a special invitation. It, and uh, goes on to say, this calling which you have been called. It's a uh, passive verb, meaning that they didn't call themselves to the Lord. They didn't just wake up and said, you know what? I'm going to choose Christ. They've been called. Who made the first move in salvation? God made the first move. He's the one that decided to save us. We see that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. God has made the first move. And he is the one who is called. Based on this calling, based upon this invitation, we're supposed to live differently. Now, this could be applied, we could apply it individually. We, we could do that. But uh, the context is that this is written to a church. And so we have to think and we have to apply it in the context of a church. What does it mean for a church to, to, to live out, to walk in a manner, to conduct itself in a manner worthy of the calling, which they have been called? It, it should... It should push us towards wanting to glorify God. It should push us towards a certain amount of excellency. It puts a demand on our life to do the best that we can, right? Uh, not that we're going to be the best that can do something, but it puts a demand on it. God has called us, and therefore we should, we should do the best that we can in whatever ministry we have. 
Are you serving the church the very best that you can do? Or are you saying, nah, I don't need to put that much effort into this church. We have been called. And based on that calling, it should have an impact in how we're preparing. How we're preparing to come to service. It starts Saturday afternoon, right? It, ironing clothes, etc., etc. I'm not trying to become legalistic or anything like that, but it should have an influence because we want to give our best. Now, as we look at this, this walking worthy, if we're going to apply verse 2, if we're going to look at verse 2, if we're going to have a two-point sermon, the first point would be walk worthy, and then the second point would be walk worthy in community. Walk worthy in community. So there's three aspects that we see in verses 1, 2, and 3 that give an aspect of living in community. And I, I'll tell you right from the get-go that um, certain groups interpret the letter of Ephesians from a uh, liberation theology, from a communistic, from a social aspect because of certain verses that we're going to see. And uh, part of us will want to recoil back and just go in the opposite way, but don't, don't do that. Let's, let's look at the verses and how they're presented. And, and just let the Bible interpret and let's fall and, and practice what the Bible says. So, uh, the first thing is found in verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. In our English, the, the you can be singular or plural, right? Uh, in the South, to make a, a plural you, you say y'all, right? That's how we make a plural uh, of, the, of the you. And, and it, uh, but here, it's, it's a plural you. It's not a singular you, as in you individually walk worthy, but rather it's a plural you. You, the community, the church, are to walk worthy. As in, we're dependent one upon the other. We can't have this group over here just not attending. And we're like, well, as long as I'm okay with the Lord, it doesn't matter what this group does. It does. The idea is not you individually walk worthy, which is applicable. But what Paul is referring to is to the community, the whole group. Now, this, this goes totally countercultural to what we think. Uh, we're very individualistic. I am going to do this and I'm going to do that. But he's not saying individually. He's saying you all, the group, walk worthy in a manner uh, of the calling which you have been called. He's addressing the whole group. Now, not only is he using that, the plural you, but in verse 2 he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. This uh, other word has this um, idea of a community, of how we're interacting with one another. You can't interact with one another if you're all by yourself. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Uh, you get locked up if you start talking to yourself and responding, right? You see these people going around in the shopping carts and they're like da-da-da-da-da, and then they start answering back to what they said. You get locked up. This is an idea of community, a community where you're showing these traits. And then at verse 3, it says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. What is the Spirit unifying? What, what is He bringing together? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 uh, 11 through 17, Paul talks about the greatness of Christ 
sacrifice because it brought, his death brought those of us who were far off to be in Christ. Uh, Christ has become our peace. He has taken away the wall of separation. Now, how does all this happen? Well, in verse 18, it talks about how the Spirit, uh, for through Him we have both uh, our access in one Spirit to the Father. What is the Spirit unifying? First of all, the sinner is being unified to the Father. But not only to the Father, we're also being unified to the other saints that the Father has chosen and predestined and, and Christ has redeemed and the Spirit has sealed. He is unifying not just us to the Father. He's unifying us to each other. That, that's the work He is doing. Now, based on these three aspects of unity, of community living, the, the plural you in verse 1, the one another in verse 2, the unity of spirit in verse 3, Paul is advocating to walk worthy in community, not individualistically. Individualistically says, it, it's just Jesus and me. It's just Jesus. I don't need a church. It's just me and Jesus. We're, we're going to walk together. And it's not me and Jesus walking together. They say, well, I, I like this church because they worship the way I want them to worship. Or they have the church services at the time that I like it. Or I like this church because I can serve when I want to serve, and then if I don't want to serve, I don't have to serve. That's a very individualistic way of looking at things. Paul's advocating for a community. It's not me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus. It's we come together to worship the Lord. It's not a focus on individuals, it's a focus on, on growing and serving one another so that we're all growing into the likeness of Christ. It's I serve for the benefit of others, not when it's convenient. Oh, sometimes we just want to serve out of convenience. If I have time, if I'm doing nothing else, you can count on me. Write down my name, Dave. But if I have anything else, if i got to wash my hair or anything else, don't, don't, no, I, I can't do it. I'm sorry. It's a very individualistic way of looking at the church. And it's not promoting what he is describing here, a community that's working together to walk worthy of the manner that which they've been called. So how do you do this? How, how do we walk worthy? Well, verse 2 tells us. It uses uh, the preposition with, with humility and gentleness. Uh, this humility is not in the sense that we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, and verse 23 where it's a self-abasement, where the, the person is, uh, is not taking care of themselves. It's just like they, they're, they're not being involved. Uh, they're just like, oh, poor me. It's not like that at all. It's the humility that Christ showed. It, it's, it's being modest. It it's, has this idea of not having a selfish ambition, but being a servant towards one another. We see it used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. In the verbal form is found in verse 8 that Christ humbled himself and became obedient on the cross to die for us. The idea is not for personal gain, but to help others. We also see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, 
that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if we have a church full of proud individuals, individualistic people, uh, what we have is God resisting them because God gives grace to the humble. Now, not only is there humility, but there's also gentleness. Gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed by uh, uh, your own self-importance. Not being overly impressed by your own self-importance. To be gentle. Uh, You see it in different places. Uh, For example, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, uh, Paul urges them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Christ was gentle. Even when he was uh, pushing out all the and turning over the tables in the temple, he was gentle, not overly impressed with his own self-importance, even though he created everything. Now, uh, when we think about those things, uh, Paul writes to Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-five, that when you're correcting someone, you're to use gentleness, because if you use gentleness, you can gain them. Being gentle and humble in a community of believers uh, helps a lot. Prideful people, it really just destroys. It has to be my way. I have all the experience. I have all the answers. It doesn't build up. Rather, it destroys. Now, not only with gentleness and humbleness, but with patience. Patience has two different ideas associated with it. One is the state of remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. So you're waiting for something to happen, but you're staying calm during that time. That's one idea. I think the context gives better for the second meaning, which is a state of being able to bear up under provocation. You don't gain patience by having no conflict at all. You don't need patience if there's no conflict at all. The fact that he's saying that you have to have patience assumes that there's a body of believers that are at each other. Something's happened. Someone's acting carnal. Someone has gotten offended and and they start antagonistic against another person. And he says, with patience. With patience, do what? He says, Showing tolerance for one another in love. In love. What motivates this humility? What motivates this gentleness? What motivates this patience is a love. As one loves God, one loves the saints that he has redeemed through Jesus Christ. You can't say, I love God, but I don't like who he has picked, who he has chosen. I don't like those who Christ has redeemed. I don't like those who the Holy Spirit has sealed. That just doesn't make sense to say, I love the Lord, but I just don't care about anybody else. In love, we are to have humility, gentleness, and with patience, showing tolerance for one another. It assumes that there is conflict, but through that, you show patience. Since we have been called We are to purposely live in community transformed by the one who has called us. You remember the Stanford prison experiment? 
it showed that individuals could start acting not based on who they were, but based on their context. We live in a simple world. We do. And what's sad is that sometimes Christians live like the world rather than the reality of who they are in Christ, under His Lordship, being a prisoner in Christ, in the sphere of Christ, that union with Christ. But it might be that you don't have that union because you have never trusted Christ. You've never put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on, on the cross. Oh, you might have said a prayer, or maybe you filled out a card, or, or you said something about Jesus in your heart, but you really just don't understand anything about that your sin separated you. And you put your faith in His work, and His work was a substitutionary work. It, it took your place, and He offers you up freely His righteousness, so that when God sees you, He'll see Christ's righteousness. Right now, you're just with your own righteousness. And God says it's as filthy rags. Will you believe today? We're going to have a time of invitation in just a second. And you could come, and I can explain. Or better yet, you can turn to the person beside you, and they'd be thrilled to share with you the gospel for how you can be saved. Other of us who are here saved, maybe we've been living thinking of an individualistic Christianity. It's just me and God. Me and my worship, me and my time of, me and my church. But not churches in the community, just me and the things that I like. It's not like that. Based on chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is calling you, us, together to walk worthy. We can't have a group saying, well, we're not going to walk, and then the rest trying to walk. We have to invest our lives in the lives of each other so that we're all walking together. Maybe you've been trying to live just by yourself. That needs to be repented of. It, it needs to be with humility and gentleness and patience, living with one another in love. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as your spirit uses your word in our lives that we will consider ourselves Father, there might be someone here that's never accepted Christ as their Savior. And I pray that today they'll put their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for other of us who we've been living, thinking that it's just about the individual. I pray that you'll forgive us and that we'll seek reconciliation by living in community with humility, gentleness, and patience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing this song of invitation.